0: So last week, Steve preached to us from Philippians chapter 1. He gave us an introduction to the book. Philippians is a book. It's written as an encouragement to the church in Philippi. And in chapter 1, Paul is rejoicing. He's expressing his joy in the advance of the gospel. And God at work in the lives of the Philippian Christians there. He's seeking to encourage them. He's seeking to encourage them in their mission to... um, not only to encourage them in their mission, but also to pursue Christ's likeness. He's exhorting them towards a humble, Christ-like posture. Okay, he wants them to be Christ-like. He, in verses 27, Steve laid out for us what it means to live, uh, to live a life that is lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? And Steve asked the question, do people know that we're Christians? If our goal is to make Christ known, if our goal is to see the gospel advance, we need, people to know, <clears throat> we need people to know Christ. We need people to know that we're Christians. We need to live in such a way that is properly demonstrating to the world what Christ is like. Okay, We need to be bold in our faith. Paul lived a life that was so captivated by Jesus that he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. If he was going to live on this earth, he was going to make his mission about making Christ known, knowing him. And he saw death is gain. Can we say that this morning? That death is gain because even when we die, we can spend all of eternity with Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, let's begin in Philippians chapter 2 now. Our text For the day, if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. So I'm going to read a lot of this. So we're talking about a lot today. Um, Bear with me. We're not going to be able to hit everything in Philippians chapter chapter 2, but we are going to hit on this first section here. But I'm going to go ahead and read all of it as I will be referencing certain aspects of it later on. So Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. i another mic here. Let's go ahead and do that real quick. I don't want to distract from the word of God. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service to me. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. Um, Here in this passage, Christ is... Christ is calling us to live out a Christian life, to pursue Christ's likeness. Most specifically, he's calling us to be unified with each other. And what does unity demand? Unity demands humility. The mission that we are on demands that we walk in humility toward each other. As Christians, we need to be unified around the mission that we have. Okay? We need to submit Surrender our own goals that we might have together in the church, we need to submit all of those, all of our aspirations, everything to the good of the church, the mission of the church. We see this good illustration of this in team sports if you played team sports. My favorite sport is basketball. You can have a basketball team, say, an NBA team that has more talent than any other team. It has the capability of beating any team it wants to beat. but if that team is not unified, if each player cares more about their own statistics, their own good, their own goals, that, that team is not going to win. We see this a lot in the NBA if you're an NBA fan. The most talented team does not always win. It's the team that is the most unified, that wants to see the team succeed, not the individual. Okay? It's the same in the church. We need, to, we need to unify around our mission, which is to make Christ known. We need to walk in unity, and that unity demands humility that we seek others' interests, that we seek the good of the churches over our own. The problem is, is that we are sinful people. This passage exposes our human nature. We all have selfish ambitions, we all have our own goals, we all seek our own good and those goals over other people's. Sometimes at the expense of other people's. Sometimes we're so corrupt that we enjoy seeing other people fail because it makes our us look better. We we are conceited as well. We struggle with pride. We struggle with vanity. We live in the selfie culture where we're regularly posting on social media pictures of ourselves in the best possible light, right? bragging about all of, our, all of the great food that we could afford, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so often we're discontent with all the great things that God has given us. And so we grumble and complain This is why Paul, even in verse 14, tells us, do all things without grumbling. It doesn't come natural to us. There's a reason why he has to tell us to do that. We can easily see the effects of sin in the disunity that we experience in our world. We lack unity. We see this at a global level countries at war with each other, at odds with each other. We see it here in America, even in fate, Rockwell County, different political wars, cultural wars, and battles that we fight. We see it in workplaces. We, we compete with each other for that promotion or our boss's approval, right? That causes us to have disunity with our coworkers, breaks down trust because we don't tr- trust what the other person's intentions are. Are they tr- just trying to flatter me so that they might, um, that they might achieve their goals, that they might el- be elevated in their workplaces? This creates disunity. We also see it in homes and families. I grew up with two brothers. The three of us were close in age, so I experienced the sibling rivalries that maybe some of you can relate to. And so with all of this disunity, maybe we can come to church and we can dwell in perfect harmony. Perfect unity, right? (laughs) Ideally, yes, ideally we experience perfect unity in our churches here at Redeemer. But the reality is, is that self-centeredness still exists here, still exists in every church. Pride and selfish ambition are present because we are sinful people. Okay, every church is full of sinful people. If you ever find that perfect church, don't join it because then you're going to mess it up. Okay, <laughs> the church is made up of people that are saved by grace. Yes, but sinners that often seek their own good over the church's good. Our goals over the church's goals. We seek our glory, our reputation above Christ's glory. And that's our mission, is to see his glory known. This is often evidenced by our consumeristic attitude towards the church. We see this in many churches today. Sometimes we can visit the church and we can ask the question, how can this church serve me and my interests, my preferences, instead of how is this church faithful to God What is this church doing to promote the gospel, to live out its mission? Sometimes our questions are wrong, in considering what church we need to be a part of or to stay a part of, sometimes our questions are wrong, and they're self-centered. We ask, how can this church serve me and my interests and preferences, rather than how can I serve this church? Self-centeredness destroys unity and keeps us from pursuing our goal. Sometimes the self-centeredness, it causes people to leave churches that they need to continue to stay and serve in. Sometimes it causes good people that a church might need. It, cause, it prevents those people from joining that church because they don't have their preferences met there. They're not unified. As Christians, we need to be unified with each other, unified in what makes a good church a good church, what our mission is, what unifies us. Okay? So self-centeredness destroys this unity, and it causes us to lose focus on what our mission is, replacing it with our own, whatever that mission may be. And here in Philippians, Paul was writing to people just like us, who had the same mission as us. If you think there wasn't the same potential for the early Christians to struggle with unity like we do today, consider what the church at Philippi was likely to have looked like. We read about this in Acts chapter 16, what the first three members of the church likely were. Last week, Steve introduced us to Lydia, who was the first convert. She was a, likely a wealthy businesswoman. We know this because she is described as a dealer in purple cloth. That's like, you know, a dealer in like Armani or Prada. I don't know if those are still relevant, but you know, those really high-end clothes, not your blue-collar citizens weren't wearing purple back in the day. Okay, so she was selling the fancy stuff. She was likely a wealthy woman of high social status from the city of Thyatira. So she was was an Asian woman. Thyatira is a city in the province of Asia. She was also a proselyte. She was someone who was a God-fearer, the Bible says. This doesn't mean that she was a Christian, but she had denounced the pagan gods of the time, and she was seeking the God of the Jews, trying to learn more. She was actually at a prayer gathering at the time when Paul comes up, and he finds her, and he shares with her Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? The Jewish Bible, okay? So he leads her to Christ. All of her family comes to Christ. All their family is baptized. So this is the first She's the first Christian, her family, the first converse here in Philippi. The second, we see a slave girl. So a very low social status. And she was demon-possessed. And she was exploited by her owners. Because she was demon-possessed, she had the ability to foretell the future. And so her business owners were benefiting from that. They were profiting. Because they could make business decisions knowing what the future would be. Okay? And so they were benefiting from her demon possession. They were taking advantage of her, not seeking to get her any help at all. She was exploited. And Paul sets her free from this bondage. And the scripture doesn't say this, but it is likely that when she was freed from demon possession, very possible that she was one of the early Christians in Philippi. And then third, someone who we know became a Christian was the jailer. When Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi at midnight, they began singing songs of praise to God in prison. How many of us would be doing that at midnight if we were in jail? Just singing and rejoicing in God's love for us and his salvation. And God comes and he frees them, miraculously breaks their bonds and he frees them. And they end up leading the jailer that was on shift. They end up leading him and his whole household to the Lord. Okay, So we have these three individuals who are likely the first three converts, or three of the first early converts and members of the church in Philippi. So there was a lot of diversity in Ephesus. Sorry, in Philippi. There were, there were socio- socioeconomic diversity. We had a wealthy merchant, a slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer. We had different religious backgrounds. We had the God fearer. We had a demon-possessed girl. Then we had a pagan. Pretty different backgrounds, We also had ethnic and racial diversity. We had diversity in ages. Okay, Do you think with all of these differences, these people might have struggled with some disunity, maybe with some pride? Perhaps you can see Lydia saying, look at all of my accomplishments, my wealth, my status, all the things that I've achieved. That should translate in the church. I should immediately become a leader in this church and have some respect here. Um, I've proven my worth here in business, so I must be qualified to lead in the church. All right, so we, can, we, we, can, we don't know that that was her attitude, but it's possible. Where the jailer, a man who had a culture of honor ingrained into him, probably had his own accomplishments that he has worked hard for, now he's being asked to serve a slave girl and consider her interests above his own? These three people come from such different backgrounds, and I'm sure that diversity doesn't end with these three individuals. We can only assume that it continues. We see more and more diversity. And Paul was not ignorant of these differences. As he was writing this letter, I'm sure he had specific individuals in mind. It says, perhaps you can imagine yourself being gone from Redeemer Church, those of you who are members here. As you think about Redeemer Church, if you had to write a letter to him or an email to him, People, specific faces and names would come to mind. Different stories would immediately come to mind as you would write a letter to Redeemer Church. I'm sure the same is with Paul. He's remembering specific people, people that he himself led to the Lord. He was their spiritual father here on earth. He loves and he cares for this people. He knows them well. And he knows their differences. He knows the possible disunity that might take place here. And so instead of... Instead of not talking, not talking about disunity or addressing this issue, he wants to give this warning now, encourage them, remain, pursue unity now before it, before it grows and begins to disunite the church and jeopardize its mission. Okay? So here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love, and being of full accord. This is Paul's call for unity. Then he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And earlier, you know, he mentions affection and sympathy, dispositions that allow us to place ourselves in others' shoes and to care for their needs. What is humility? It's putting others' needs their interests above our own. Humility with God and others looks like living primarily for them rather than ourselves. Humility in the church looks like putting the church's good and goals above our own, and we have said this before. And Paul does give us good examples of humility and Christ's likeness in this chapter. We see Timothy of whom it was Paul says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Timothy embodied well this humility, okay, seeking the good seeking others' interests before his own. We see Epaphroditus in verse twenty-five, Paul says, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all. And then in 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That looks like humility to me. And then Paul, in verse 17, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So he gives us some great examples, some good examples of what humility looks like. What it looks like to be sold out for God's mission, the church's mission, rather than our own individual ones. All of these men were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Okay, and for the good of the church in Philippi. And Paul, Paul is calling us today, as he called the Philippian Christians then, to embrace a humble posture. This is what God commands of us. And this is his law that we would be humble before him and others. But if you have left today having only heard a sermon where I was telling you to be humble, then you haven't heard a Christian sermon, you've heard a very legalistic one. That's because of our brokenness, our sinfulness, we don't have the ability on our own to be truly humble people. I'd be calling you to something that you could never attain to. I'd, I'd be giving you no hope. We don't have the power on our own to put that sinfulness to death in us. We, we need both the law of God and we need his gospel, where the Holy Spirit comes and he writes his law on our hearts so that we can be truly humble, so that we can truly live God-centered lives that lead to serving others instead of living self-serving lives. Okay? So let's talk about the gospel here, because this passage is rich in the gospel. Earlier I gave three great examples of, Of humility for us but they're not the even the example that Paul tells us to look to they're not the point they're they're not the sermon illustration that Paul gives us if you will the perfect example of humility is Christ and he says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus that's in the ESV in the Christian Standard Bible it says adopt the same attitude as that of Christ he's saying look at Christ be like Christ And here Paul gives us this beautiful section on the humility of Jesus, the most perfect example of humility that we'll ever know, we'll ever read about. And this passage here, so in verses 6 through 11, it's known commonly as the Carmen Christi, which is a Christian hymn. It is very likely that these six verses were an early hymn that the Christian church would sing together okay? Possibly a confession that they read aloud as they remembered together and confessed what they believed, okay? We don't know this for sure, but the way that Paul uses it, because of its poetic and doctrinal nature, this is very likely, okay? It's as if you asked me, hey, Brian, what is God's grace like? And I just began saying, oh, God's grace? Well, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, you know? It's like I was just using this song that everybody knows to help y'all understand what God's grace is like, to remind you of what God's grace is like. So this, this passage here tells of Christ's humility, and it begins by telling us who Christ is, that Christ is God. It says that he was in the very form of God. It's kind of a different way than probably you would talk about Christ being God, but in the Greek what Paul is communicating is that Christ is God. Before time began, Christ is God, okay? He's the pre-existent one In Colossians, we read that all things were created by him and through him and for him. If there ever becomes, if you ever find in the Bible a verse that is difficult for you to understand, bear other scriptures to bring light on it so that you understand it. All scripture interprets scripture. Right? Some people, this passage right here, have been led to believe different things about Christ because of the word usage here, but that's not what Paul is communicating. Christ is God. And it says that he emptied himself. This does not mean that when Christ came, when God the Son took on human flesh, that he ceased to become God. It means that he laid aside his rights. Okay? It does not mean he laid aside his power. He laid aside his rights. Think of it this way. Christ could have come born in a palace, but he instead, he chose to be born in a lowly manger. He could have come and worn a royal crown, but instead he came to wear a crown of thorns, okay? He shows, this shows us what true humility is. It's the laying down of rights. It says he did not consider being equal with God a thing to be grasped, okay? He did not come with that attitude. He came seeking seeking our own interests, Okay, considering our own interests, our own need. And it says that he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And he did not have the attitude, I don't deserve this. Okay? How often do we think that way? That we, do we have the attitude, I don't deserve this? We act so entitled. We grumble and we complain about what we, what we experience in life. But, but Jesus never did. As the old hymn says, he never said a mumbling word. He, he, he never complained. He fulfilled the law of God that demanded our perfect humility. Okay? Jesus considered our needs over his. He was more than just the perfect example too. We needed more than a perfect example. And that's what makes this such a beautiful humility. that, that he, did, he did consider our needs above his own. And what did we need? We needed a savior. We needed to be made right with God. We needed unity with God again. We needed righteousness because we had none. James 4, 6, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, we were the proud that God opposes. Do you ever think that way? That before the gospel, God opposed you, but he gives grace to the humble. How can we have humility? We can only have it through Christ. Looking to him. While we were were most in need because of our sin, Christ did die for us. And it is all for his glory. He is Lord. Every knee shall bow and proclaim that he is Lord. One thing that is so beautiful, this is so important, that God glorifies himself through meeting our deepest needs. Because in it, he shows his power, his redemptive power. He shows his mercy. He shows his love for us, even when we're so unworthy of that. Christ is not only a great example for us, but he he has actually accomplished something for us in his humility. He has forever united himself to us. By faith in Christ, what is said about Christ is true for us. Jesus is said to be God's son. He is God's son. By faith in Christ, we become God's children. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. When God looks upon us, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. When I just said that, that does not mean that we become Jesus, or we become God, we will never be God. But God looks at us and sees us like he sees Jesus as his son, perfect and beloved and righteousness and pure and humble. Right? God gives grace to the humble. So first, when Paul is calling for unity in this passage, we first must have unity with Christ, which, which is what he's communicating in verse one. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, In the Spirit, he is writing to those who are in Christ. Those who have experienced his encouragement and love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Only Christians have experienced that fellowship. Those who have been united to him. This unity is only received by grace through faith. It is only received by those who have been made humble before him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The only hope for peace among men is that men be brought off their throne that they may be humbled and together bow their knees to God. The only way that we can have unity with each other is if all of us humbly submit to Christ as our king and remove ourselves from being king of our lives. Stop making decisions for ourselves. Stop pursuing our own goals. We submit all of those things to our ultimate purpose in life. We surrender everything to our king. And that is going to unite us. It does. Christians are those who have denounced themselves as king of their lives and submitted themselves to Christ as their king. And Christian humil- humility begins here. It has to. There's no other way we can have authentic Christian humility. And so what this means is we can have humility, we can have unity with each other when we first have unity with Christ. Okay? We must recognize that those who are in Christ, we are one with. This is a reality. If I call God my Father, Those who have God as their father are my siblings. What we have to realize is that we have more in common with the early Christians in Philippi than we do with those who live next door to us, even though they have the same ethnicity, the same tax bracket, the same favorite football team, the same looking house, same favorite everything, right? They might look exactly like us, but if they don't have Christ, we have more in common with every other Christian from every age, Okay? Even, even family members that we have that are not in Christ, we have more unity with our s- spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? We need to embrace this, this unity this, and walk in humility towards them. So how, So now that we know that we have this unity with Christians, how do we live it out? We have to remember, again, what unites us as Christians. That requires remembering the gospel, never walking away from it, never forgetting it. And this humility, it looks like this. Here, here are a few practical things for you. Walking in humility with others, it looks like praying for others. If God answered all of your prayers today with a yes, would those around you have their needs met? Because when we begin to pray, when we begin to pray for other people, we're, we're asking God to intervene. We're, we're asking God who has the power to meet everybody's needs because we, we, can, we can meet needs on our own, only through what God has given us. But we want, to, we want to ask God to move and to meet people's needs. And praying for other people is the most important thing that we can do for them. But so much of the time, we only pray about ourselves. So That's why I ask. If God were to answer every one of your prayers today with a yes, would those around you be saved? Would your neighbors be saved? Those in your family who do not know Christ, who are going to perish and spend all of eternity away from Christ? Are you praying for them? Praying for their salvation? That's considering their interests. Okay? So would those around you have their needs met if we're praying for them? We need to be praying for others. Second, we do need to be serving others. We do. We do need to be investing our time. We need to be investing our energy. Investing our resources, whatever those may be. We need to be investing in other people. Sometimes sacrificing our own wants our own desires, our own needs for other people's? Are we serving? Are we involved in other people's lives? Or are we only spending time pursuing what we want, spending all of our free time only with ourselves? Or are we giving? Are we serving other people? It has to look like this. Third, celebrating others. God has given all of us gifts to serve the church, spiritual gifts we should all be serving the local church, serving him. God's given all of us gifts for the edification of the body. Sometimes, if we don't have humility, it's tough to celebrate the gifts of others. But I do believe it's so important that we celebrate the gifts of other people and encourage them, affirm them. Praise God for the gifts that he has given others. Praise God for how he is using them. Okay? We need to be praying for others, serving others, and celebrating others. The ways that God has blessed them and gifted them, all the victories that they have witnessed in their lives. Yeah. So what does this require? In verse 16, Paul, Paul uses this phrase, hold fast to the word of life. If we're going to walk in humility, we cannot depart from the word of God. Scripture, it is scripture that creates in us humility. Scripture exposes to us how sinful we are, thus humbling us. It also reminds us of how loved we are, though, who we were made for, who our king is that unites us, what our mission is. God's word has the power to create humility in us. So hold fast to it. Immerse your lives in it. And finally, as you reflect on the gospel, because if you immerse your life in the word of God, you are going to continuously be brought to the gospel because all of the scripture is about the gospel. As you reflect on this, you're going to be forced to remember your own testimony, what God has done in your life? Charles Spurgeon, he said this, when we tell the story of our own conversion, I would have done it with great sorrow, remembering what we used to be, and with great joy and gratitude, remembering how little we deserve these things. The humble person is the person who remembers everything good we have in this life is not deserved. Scripture tells us the wages of our sin is death. Do you walk with an attitude that everything good that you have is a gift from God? That awareness creates humility in us. It causes us to be more free with the resources that God has given us to bless other people with. Okay? One thing that is so great, we are truly humble, is that we really do have joy. Okay? I'm not asking you to live a miserable life. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not saying pursue humility, pursue living a joyless life. No, he's calling us to a joyful life. The humble life is a joyful life, the most joyful and full life. When we read in Hebrews 12, 2, it says that Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Okay? Jesus' example of humility was him dying on the cross, which he did for the joy that was set before him. He did this with a joy. Even Paul, in this, in this example here, and we see this in Paul, and as, as, he, as he was in prison, he was counting all of this as joy. He was rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, that God was using him. Whatever came about, he could rejoice in God because of God's love for him and because of how good it is to know Jesus, right? There is joy in living in humility before God and others. And humility leads to unity while at the same time it leads to joy. A truly humble life in Christ is a life that is free from comparison. It's a life that's free from jealousy. It's a life that's free from discouragement. When I was in college, I worked for Pine Cove, Pine Cove family camp every summer in college, and there was one summer where I heard our camp director, he said, if if you are truly humble, nothing can touch you. What he meant by that was that if you are a truly humble person, if somebody comes to discourage you, why would that discourage you? Because you already know what you are before God. It's like, hey, you don't know the half of it, okay? Now, that doesn't mean like what you're saying is not true, but you can't hurt me. I know what I am. Also, if somebody comes to you, they begin praising you. They, they, can't, they don't have the power to puff you up because you know everything I have is given to me by God, right? Truly humble person, nothing can touch us, okay? It's a life that is, the result revolves around Christ, So all of these things that I've just listed, comparison, jealousy, discouragement, pride, all of these things, they deprive us of our joy in Christ. They do. A truly humble life in Christ communicates to the world that true joy is not found in our reputation. It's not found in the status that we have, the job that we have, the house, any of our possessions. It's not found in what status we have. It's just not. All of those things are temporary things. They're fleeting. Okay, they're all temporal. And we aren't in control of all of these things, no matter how much we think that we are. Rather, true joy is found in knowing Christ and experiencing and following him. Christ is the one that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay? Which means that his love for you, he has for you now, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It doesn't waver. So delight yourself in it. Delight yourself in his love and be glad. Okay? Make your life's mission to make this love known to others around you by walking in humility towards them. You're free to do that now. Walk in humility with those around you. And these are my closing words, okay? I'm not gonna be like Shannon and be like, okay, now four things. No, now 10 things. No, (laughs) okay. These are my closing words. (laughs) So this morning, look to Christ. Embrace the unity that you have with him and his people. And in faith, step out and walk in humility with others so that we can shine like lights in the world as Paul said in this chapter, right? testifying to the world of the, of the goodness of Jesus and that the joy that we have, it's not found in this world. Our joy is found in Christ, okay? There is joy in laying down our lives for others, serving others because our joy is not found in those things. It's found in Christ. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ Jesus Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, we do this morning, we confess that he is Lord. He is our Savior, our perfect example of humility. Humility that we wish to have. And God, humility, humility that we need if we want to live our lives for you and carry out your mission that you have given us to make Christ known. The joy that is found in him. We want to make that joy known. We want to make known your goodness and make known your glory. So Lord, help us. And God, if there is anyone here in this room who does not know you, who does not know Christ as Savior, God, we pray. That God, in your goodness, in your mercy, I mean your sovereignty, God, that you would grant them faith to believe now that they might be reconciled to you, have that unity with you, God, that we as Christians have with you. They would know your sweetness of your fellowship. God, your love, your, your grace. Lord, for all of us Christians in the room, help us to live out our faith, to embrace the humble posture, the posture of a servant, Christ did. Sometimes, God, we, we, we have so much pride, we, we refuse to do that, but Lord, would you humble us? Give us the grace to live humble lives for the sake of others, for the sake of your glory. Help us to live out unity with each other that is ours in Christ, that we might live out our mission to make Christ known, living for his glory and his kingdom. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.